Okay. And sorry for the technical delay, folks. Uh, we're still getting used to the 21st century, but good evening and welcome to the Culinary Historians of Chicago. I'm Scott Warner, president of our longstanding organization, which is now in its 28th year. It started before I was born. No, not really, but I'm socially distanced, momentarily unmasked and fully vaccinated and all ready to present you our speaker on tonight's program on the larger than life, James Beard. Tonight's program will be about a titillating spicy subject, James Beard, or as our author John Birdsall refers to him as the man who ate too much, which is also the title of John's new wonderfully selling revealing book about Beard. And no one better to write about this book than John. I'll tell you a little bit about John. John is a Tucson-based food and culture writer. He's the recipient of two James Beard Awards for writing. His articles have appeared in Food and Wine, Sabour, Bon Appetit, Los Angeles Times, and San Francisco Chronicle. John also has a strong Chicago culinary connection as he lived here for about six years, working professionally in various local restaurants. I met John in 2019, two years ago in Santa Fe, New Mexico, during the International Association of Culinary Professionals annual conference, which is attended by the who's who of food writers. We happened to be sitting at the same table during a food break, and I asked this very pleasant gentleman what kind of writing he did. He told me he was working on a biography on James Beard. And when I asked him who his publisher was, and he said Norton, which is a prestigious publisher, I knew I was not dealing with chopped liver. I immediately asked him if he'd consider giving a talk for our group after his book came out. And despite the pandemic and thanks to Zoom, here he is tonight. Fellow foodies, let us welcome all the way from his home in Tucson, John Birdsall. Take it away, John. Well, thank you very much, Scott. That was uh, probably one of the, the best introduction I've ever had. So um, I'm grateful to you for that. I'm gr grateful that we happened to meet in Santa Fe in 2019. Me too. Um, great. So um, thank you, everybody. I'm thrilled to be here with you virtually. And I wanted to talk uh, about my new biography of James Beard, The Man Who Ate Too Much. Um, and I want to focus on uh, three of James Beard's books, um, probably his best known books. Um, they, uh, they span th um, three decades. The first is the Fireside Cookbook of 1949. The second is The Lights and Prejudices of 1964. And the third is James Beard's American Cookery of 1972. Before I talk about the books, I just wanted to talk about James Beard generally for those who don't know a lot about him. And I should add that um, one of the sort of tragic things about James Beard is that although pretty much everybody knows his name because of the chef and restaurant awards in his name and the foundation uh, based in New York City that organizes the awards, um, he is a food personality who has really sort of faded from the general consciousness, um, which is something that was really probably unthinkable. Um, in the last decade that he lived in the 1980s, sort of the apex of his fame in the United States. He was a household name, had been really since the 1950s. 
Um, and he was literally, well, almost literally larger than life as a food personality. And he was born in Portland, Oregon in 1903. Here you see him um, with his mother behind him, his stepsister and his father, John Beard, uh, his mother, Elizabeth Beard, um, at their still fairly new home in Portland, Oregon. And um, James Beard moved to New York City definitively uh, for the second and final time in 1937 and lived there essentially until he um, passed away in January of 1985. So although um, he's best known as a figure based in New York City, he, in one of the books that I'm going to talk about, Delights and Prejudices, creates this mythology about his own life, about himself, that's based in Portland, Oregon, and along the Oregon coast, where his mother had a little summer cottage uh, and would do beach catering. Um, so um, it was very important for James Beard, um, for his, uh, I guess, brand, we would call it. Um, and I should note that one of the really remarkable things uh, about James Beard is that he was really the first person in American food to really stress a personal identity through food. Um, you know, today, it's something that we take for granted. It's something that Food Network is built on and something that, you know, authors, when they release cookbooks, um, you know, usually cookbooks published today give a really strong sense of the author's personality, a little glimpse into the author's life, uh, and, you know, often into their biography. Um, and this was, this was really new in American food when James Beard burst on the scene. He wrote his first cookbook, or his first cookbook was published in 1940. It was a book on hors d'oeuvres and canapes. Uh, since the late, since 1938, he had been working in New York City as the co-founder of a small but very influential catering company um, that operated on the Upper East Side of New York City uh, called Hors d'oeuvre Incorporated. And it really, you know, James Beard really found his voice with this catering company because what he was to uh, accomplish in American food in the succeeding decades was really to uh, take what had been a small uh, kind of elite movement in the United States, the gourmet food movement, and really democratize it, really sort of bring it to everyday Americans who bought his cookbooks or who attended one of his many cooking classes or demonstrations that he would give around the country, many in Chicago. Um, and he really um, was an evangelist for Americans for thinking about cooking and certainly shopping for food in a new way, ways that we all take for granted now. Um, and here, James Beard in his um, you know, formative years in Portland, Oregon, we really see the roots of what we call now the farm to table movement. This idea that um, you know, at a time you know, in the 1950s when he was really starting to get noticed as a national figure in the United States, um, you know, the, the, the biggest accomplishment of the United States food system, food distribution system was the supermarket, the enormous gleaming supermarket that had uh, created a revolution 
uh, in the way that Americans shopped and in the access they had to food. And you know, the fact that you could buy tomatoes in January, strawberries in January. And this was inimical to what James Beard uh, sort of preached to his readers, which is that they should shop for flavor, that they should uh, shop seasonally, that they should look for foods that are raised uh, around them. And he, that, you know, instead of thinking about what to, what, to, what to cook and what to serve guests at a party or your own family, you know, instead of those things being based on budget or nutrition or um, all of these sort of rules devised by home economists at the time, um, that really one should eat with an eye to pleasure. Um, for flavor, for pleasure, for seasonality, for kind of expressing the place where you lived through food. Um, and so James Beard's influence was really built on cookbooks. Um, certainly his national influence was based on cookbooks. Here we see James Beard at a backyard party in Greenwich Village. Uh, this is 1953. And um, he's at the home of Cecily Brownstone, who was the food editor for the Associated Press um, for several decades. And so James Beard uh, at this period in the early 1950s um, has uh, started to become a household name. Uh, he's not yet described as the Dean of American Cookery, which is uh, what a writer at the New York Times dubbed him in 1955, and which he would um, sort of wear until his death and even after his death. He was sort of known as the Dean of American Cookery. Or, um, but his influence is really starting to be felt. And his, the main engine of that influence was, as I say, through cookbooks. Uh, he became famous for um, cooking classes, the James Beard Cooking School that he launched in 1956, but that had a very limited influence. I mean, he could only uh, teach, you know, maybe he had maybe 20 pupils at a time um, in his townhouse in New York City where he would teach. But his great fame came through his cookbooks. And when James Beard start, started writing, um, when he was offered his first cookbook, the one on hors d'oeuvres and canapes that I mentioned that was published in 1940 by M. Barrows and Company, um, the whole cookbook publishing industry was really unrecognizable. We, we would not recognize it today. Americans in the, in the late 1930s um, didn't, weren't interested in buying very many cookbooks. They weren't interested in owning very many cookbooks. And the few cookbooks that they owned, they would either be, um, there'd be a lot of free small cookbooks or booklets that would be um, offered by you know, the gas company or various other companies. Um, and they, Americans bought and consumed um, sort of cooking Bibles. So something like The Joy of Cooking, which although it does have some personality, you know, it does have Irma Rombauer's voice, uh, less and less through the editions. This is the 1931 edition um, that went through many, many 
many editions. I think mine is a reprint from the 1940s. Um, and you can see it's very well loved. But Americans were really interested in books that had thousands of recipes that would teach them to make anything that they could conceivably want to make. So anything from um, you know, an ordinary weeknight dinner for the family to um, you know, fancier dishes that they'd have to make for a party. Uh, they wanted all of those in one volume and books like The Joy of Cooking really offered that to them. One of the best-selling American cookbooks of all time, this is the 1950 edition of Betty Crocker's picture cookbook. Um, this was uh, published in 1950. Um, so it's a bit later, but it really does um, you know, have all the aspects of a cookery Bible, um, a kitchen Bible. This one um, is, has, of course, we all know, a fake author. There's no Betty Crocker. Um, these recipes were developed and tested by a team, by a group of uh, primarily women, home economists who worked for General Mills and who developed recipes under the name of Betty Crocker. And they're not identified anywhere in this book. And you can see this book, you can see this sort of gleaming test kitchen, the General Mills test kitchen. Um, and really the purpose of this book, would, you know, other than to get Americans to, to buy it is to sell flour, is to sell General Mills flour. Um, and so it, <laughs> sort of creates a myth, this idea about American food that's heavy on baking. Um, this book has all kinds of recipes, but it's really heavy on baking recipes, which, you know, for later generations, um, they'll sort of look back at a book like this and it'll be sort of, you know, this, the, the sort of historical sense of American food is sort of skewed <laughs> this document because it seems that American food is sort of cookie and cake and you know quick bread heavy because um, those are primarily the recipes that are in this book. Here's a pie, <laughs> a cherry pie for like Washington's birthday. So it's very sort of slick and appealing, um, but it doesn't have the author's personality. I mean, apart from this general sense of Betty Crocker as a reliable um, guide in the kitchen, um, you know, who won't let the housewife. And, you know, sadly, it did fall on women in these really heavily prescribed gender roles to be the main providers um, of family meals. You know, men might be these gourmets who would dabble in the kitchen on a Sunday and make a fancy dish. But, um, you know, someone like James Beard who came up, a man who was um, writing cookbooks, not just about sort of fancy gourmet food, but everyday food, um, you know, writing about food that Americans would cook every day. This is something new. This is unusual that a man would be the author of it. And so here's Serve It Forth uh, by MFK Fisher. It was published in 1937. And so the gourmet movement in America, um, really exemplified by a writer like MFK Fisher, um, had a very highbrow kind of literary component. And you, you know, we can see this perfectly in Serve It Forth. So just as James Beard is getting into food after a failed 
career on the stage. He really wanted to be an actor and then uh, tried to be a great opera tenor, but he didn't quite have the chops for either of those things. Um, after he takes up food, um, takes up catering and is off and is you know, given the opportunity to write this book, the American food landscape um, is, has a small but increasingly important gourmet movement thanks to authors like MFK Fisher. But they're not speaking to ordinary Americans. I mean, a book like Serve It Forth is you know, meant to appeal to a kind of elite group of literary sort of readers, people who are interested in food, uh, but primarily interested in literature, in you know, good writing, in evocative writing. This is a book that was published in 1947. So just before James Beard's uh, Fireside Cookbook is published. So this represents, this is the gold cookbook by Louis Pidegoy, who also died in 1947. And he was a French chef. Uh, he was from France and he came to the United States to cook for really sort of wealthy families in New York City. Uh, he became um, the sort of first food editor of Gourmet Magazine when it launched in the 1940s. And the Gold Cookbook has you know, well over 2,000, I think it has 2,400 recipes. So it's a kitchen Bible. Uh, it has you know, everything from breakfast dishes to fancy dessert dishes. Um, but what's unusual about it is that it takes the gourmet movement it takes some elements of what MFK Fisher was doing, um, which is this idea that um, you know Americans should eat more like the French eat, which is to think about food as a sensual experience. Um, and de Goy is sort of putting this into a large kitchen Bible. Um, it's a really strange book, if any of you have seen it, um, because it has, you know, most of the recipes or many of the recipes are for the sort of fancy, really French inflected food that you know, upper middle class Americans would have ordered in restaurants or tried cooking at home for, for fancy dinners. But Degoy also you know, introduces some American regional foods. Um, so there are, you know, casseroles that have some hot, that, you know, include like cut up hot dogs um, and there's, you know, Brunswick stew and things like that, but he's not a very convincing uh, voice for these kind of regional American foods. So in the late 1940s, <clears throat> James Beard is writing for uh, the very young gourmet magazine. And the editor, Earl McCausland, um, has a friend in Palm Beach, Florida, who is uh, an architect, and he's built a fancy home. Um, and it has this lavish patio uh, with really lavish outdoor cooking equipment, um, you know, outdoor rotisserie, um, you know, outdoor, you know, enormous outdoor barbecue barbecue for entertaining. So he assigns James Beard uh, a story. He sends him down to Palm Beach on the train to visit his friend and to write about uh, this really elevated style of outdoor cooking for Gourmet Magazine. While James Beard is in Palm Beach, he meets a woman at a party named Lily Duplay. And her husband is Georges Duplay, who we see in this sketch at the bottom and he's in the left-hand side 
uh, of this photograph. Um, and he was from France. He had a really um, highly developed sense of food. Um, and he was interested in printing and book publishing. And he had been hired by Simon & Schuster, which is a sort of um, innovative upstart publisher. Um, and Simon & Schuster started a division called the Sandpiper Press, and they started to do this really innovative series of children's books called the Little Golden Books. And Georges Duplay um, got together all of these really wonderful illustrators and authors. And in fact, his wife, Lily, was an author of a few Little Golden Book uh, golden book titles for children. And so Simon & Schuster and the Sandpiper Press was um, taking chances on different kinds of books. So they took this formula of um, illustration and they wanted to um, produce a series of books for adults. And in 1947, they, well, they had started a series of fireside books and fireside books were supposed to be sort of lavishly illustrated picture books for adults. Um, and, you know, fireside being, it would be something, you know, you would curl up with in the evening, um, you know, while you were listening to the radio uh, and sort of flip through it. And so there was like a fireside book for do about dogs, about you know, various sports. And this one, Fireside Book of Folk Songs became a national uh, bestseller in the US in 1947. So the idea that Simon & Schuster had and Sandpiper Press had was, well, if this did so well, what if we did a book about food? Um, and what if we did a really innovative book about food, which is not a kitchen Bible, not like Joy of Cooking, not like Louis P. Goy's book, um, and those books have, you know, they might have like Joy of Cooking, there might be a woodcut at the beginning of each chapter. But the idea here would be a book about food and cooking. It would have recipes, but it would be lavishly illustrated. Uh, it would be something that you could flip through even if you weren't interested in cooking. It would appeal to men as well as women. And they were casting about, these are some of the little golden books, um, they were sort of casting about for the right person to write this book. And so at this party in Palm Beach, James Beard, who has a really you know, theatrical, oversized, outsized personality, um, you know, is sort of talking about his experiences in food as a caterer in New York City, um, as someone who had been stationed overseas in the war. He set up commissaries. Uh, including working in one in Marseille. And so he had experience of food in the south of France and in Paris. And so the Duplays thought that they had probably found their man, that James Beard had this large personality, he was large physically, but he had this large personality that could really kind of author this uh, large, larger than life book about food. So they gave him uh, Albert Leventhal, who was the main editor uh, for Sandpiper, um, uh, gave James Beard a contract to write a book, the Fireside Cookbook. Um, he had to do it in a very short amount of time. Um, he had written three books up to that point, one on hors d'oeuvres, one on outdoor cooking uh, that was from 1941, and then in 1944, 
Um, he had published a book um, that was about uh, game and fowl cooking. All these were done for M. Barrows and Company, which was um, a company that just sort of churned out books, especially uh, service books, all kinds of books about you know, child rearing and house cleaning, lots of domestic things. Um, it was a fairly low bar for authors, <laughs> cookbook authors, to you know, get a contract to write a book for Barrows. So Simon & Schuster really represented a huge step up for James Beard. Um, Simon & Schuster would be able to uh, distribute the book nationally, uh, and Barrows didn't do a very good job of that. And so here was an opportunity for James Beard to um, get a much wider audience. Um, Simon & Schuster was known for not paying its authors very much, and instead of giving him any um, sort of royalties, he sort of signed away any future royalties and he just got a lump sum uh, payment. So he got 10,000 10, bucks to write this book, to do these 1,200 recipes in I think nine months, he had, he had to churn them out. Um, and Simon, Simon and Schuster, Sandpiper Press, uh, as um, illustrators, they chose the couple that you see here, Martin and Alice Provenson, um, who had come to New York City from Los Angeles. Um, um, Alice had been, so they, they, they both been sort of popular cartoon illustrators. Martin had worked for uh, Walt Disney, had worked on parts of Fantasia, and Alice Provenson had worked for uh, the Lance Studios, uh, the Woody Woodpecker Studios. So they had this really sort of popular style, but they also drew on um, sort of classical art motifs. And so Sandpiper Press, Albert, Albert Leventhal thought they might be perfect. And then on the left here, you see Dorothy Bennett. She's with Walt Disney and with another Sandpiper Press editor. So Dorothy Bennett, um, who had edited, you know, large, large format books for Sandpiper Press, she'd written like a children's encyclopedia. She was going to be the editor for this cookbook, the Fireside Book. And so here we see the finished book with uh, one of the Provinson's lavish illustrations. Fireside was published, as I said, in 1949. And um, Simon & Schuster and Sandpiper were sort of known for kind of gimmicks. Um, the first big book that Simon & Schuster did was a crossword puzzle book that came uh, packaged with a little pencil. Um, and in the children's books that they did, like Pat the Bunny, which had, you know, sandpaper that children could touch and a cotton ball. They were really sort of trying to think outside the box for their books. And so the paper jacket, the dust jacket, you can see this is my copy and I've sort of opened it up so that dust jacket becomes this lavish poster about food on the other side that you could, it said, you know, suitable for hanging in playrooms or <laughs> whatever. This is really, the start of James Beard's popular personality. Um, he's sort of, you know, um, is writing about food, is writing essentially a kitchen Bible, but it has partly because of the illustrations and partly because of James's voice that you see in some of the recipes. It really does have a level of personality, uh, almost a narrative quality that best-selling kitchen Bibles of the time do not have. Um, and so this is really 
a step forward in cookbooks, um, it's, it sort of takes the cookbook just off of the kitchen shelf, purely, you know, purely as something that is just going to be useful to a woman, um, you know, who works domestically in the home or who could sort of open a cookbook uh, to her to her maid or cook and sort of point to her, you know, to 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 indicate what what she wants her to cook. This is really food that is uh, much more entertainment and participation. Um, and as I say, even if you weren't interested yourself in cooking, even if you didn't have the cooking responsibilities yourself, Fireside Cookbook is one that you could um, thumb through as entertainment. And here's a Provenson illustration. They sort of quote from art here. There's sort of quote, quoting sort of visually from Grant Wood, Dinner for Threshers, but in this really um, very Disney style, making it really, really accessible. Um, and so this is, um, you know, this is really the start of James Beard's, James Beard's public image. Uh, in his first three books, he, he has a very personal voice. You can hear James's speaking voice coming through. He's, he's, he's sassy. Um, you know, his, his, the, the, the fact that he's, you know, a gay man who has been spending his time in the theater world in New York City, which is full of other gay people. Um, you can really see this, you can really hear this in James's voice in the first three books. Um, one of the things that his editor, Dorothy Bennett, um, who, 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 who was also a queer woman, um, did was really mold James's voice. Uh, it still has personality, but it takes on this professorial tone. He becomes this um, authority on food and wine uh, and entertaining. Um, and it's the, the, the first glimmer that we see of the James Beard that became a household person, household name in the United States. Um, you know, he starts to become the James Beard of tweed jackets and bow ties, um, who still has a sort of cornball, very American way of expressing himself, um, but a, a, a deep and sophisticated knowledge of food, um, one that um, he gleaned through travels to France primarily, and he saw where how food had a much different place in the culture, um, where coming around the table, um, you know, people came around the table in a different way in a place like France. And there was an appreciation for um, simpler foods, but foods that were shopped, um, you know, that were sort of sourced with a lot of care and cooked with a lot of care, even though they were, um, you know, they might be inexpensive. Um, and one of James Beard's big accomplishments in Fireside is to start to fuse those ideas onto this purely American sense, cultural sense. Um, in other words, instead of say like the master, you know, mastering the art of French cooking, <laughs> um, you know, a decade and a half later, um, you know, a little more than 10 years later, where it's like, um, you know, I'm going to take all of these ideas of French cooking, 
um, and show you how to cook like, like, a, like, a, like a French cook. James Beard takes all of these ideas about French cooking or takes many ideas about French cooking um, and Americanizes them. Doesn't say, I saw this in France, just absolutely Americanizes them, you know, uses English uh, instead of French terms for a lot of the recipes and just basically naturalizes them, sort of grafts these French ideas, even French recipes onto American ingredients um, and sort of creates something that feels very fresh and new. Um, Fireside Cookbook is a flawed book in many ways, uh, something that critics were quick to pounce on. Um, I've included this, here you see the bird's eye cookbook. Uh, this was, I think from 1945 uh, and after World War II in the late 1940s, frozen, you know, consumer frozen foods just exploded in the United States. And so Fireside Cookbook, uh, James Beard includes a chapter on frozen foods. Um, a lot of them, I suspect, he really sort of copied from this, or, you know, barely changed from this bird's eye cookbook. Uh, and in fact, Marjorie Dean, who was a PR person for General Foods, which then owned bird's eye, um, you know, he sort of thanks her and lists her as someone who helped with the book. <laughs> um, so, you know, even though James Beard has a, a good sensibility about food, you know, a very sort of French grounding in food, he's not above being absolutely commercial. So if the publisher wanted something about, you know, the most popular style of foods of the day, which are frozen foods, James Beard was going to give it to them. And this is a book by Jeanne Owen, who was James Beard's great mentor. Jeanne Owen lived in New York City. Uh, she was French um, and, and she was one of the most uh, important people in American food, which was a very small world uh, in the late 1930s. But Jeanne Owen was the secretary of the New York Wine and Food Society, which was enormously influential and enormously influential in um, making uh, you know, creating relationships with uh, journalists and sort of, you know, so Jane Nickerson of the New York Times, uh, for instance, and Sheila Hibben of the New Yorker. And so Jeanne Owen was James, sort of took James Beard up and decided she was going to teach him everything she knew about food. She was going to mold him as a food personality. Uh, I think she had a romantic interest in James as well, which you know, of course he couldn't, he couldn't return because he was gay. Um, that didn't seem to bother Jeanne. It seemed to be a pattern <laughs> with her. She seemed to sort of collect gay men who were interested in food. Um, but this is a major source. James, you know, uses some of her recipes and thanks Jeanne in the Fireside Cookbook. Jeanne Owen is really, um, you know, like MFK Fisher, although she's not you know, a great writer. Um, she is really one of the few people at the sort of peak of this American gourmet movement. Um, and when I sort of alluded to the fact that 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 critics, you know, saw the flaws in in the Fireside book, um, so Sheila Hibben uh, of the New Yorker um, wrote a review that was really devastating uh, of the Fireside Cookbook. It was published in the New Yorker. She writes, as beautiful and elaborate a picture book, 
uh, as the season is likely to, to provide. The author is obviously a fine cook, and he, and he could unquestionably have produced a useful, workable cookbook if he had not undertaken to write a world beater, enormously pretentious, repetitious, padded with bits of women's magazine anthropology, exotic menus, meals planned for hot and cold weather, and pompous generalities about wine. The work attempts an inclusiveness which Bria Savarin, Montaignan, and Escoffier in collaboration might well have boggled. The truth is Mr. Beard simply doesn't know enough. Um, so this is, this is really devastating to James. Um, you know, it's, it, it, it also shows him um, sort of seizing his independence from a mentor like Jan Owen, uh, who was, you know, a dear friend of Sheila Hibbins. And so they feel like, you know, even though he's a really popular figure, uh, who is going to sort of democratize food, um, the, the, the sort of food elites are really sort of outraged that, that you know, he, this, this, this upstart would sort of pretend to be this great authority on, on, on food. So it's a lesson for James, but it also shows um, that what he is trying to do uh, this sort of popularizing of gourmet ideas um, has a lot of power in it, um, you know, if it's like offending, offending elites. Um, and here we see James in 1953 at that same backyard party. I showed a photo from before. Um, so you can see the sort of world that he moves in. On the right, uh, it's the great Clementine Paddleford. Um, who wrote for Gourmet in the New York Herald Tribune. Um, there's Cecily Brownstone in the sort of pattern dress. Um, and so this is really the, the, the world in which James is moving. This is the world of American food. So after his experience at Fireside, James Beard all along has really been frustrated with cookbook publishing. Um, and he, um, he's not a fan of kitchen Bibles. Um, and his great uh, goal is to write what he calls a narrative style cookbook. One that really showcases the authors, his personality, um, that isn't just a collection of recipes, but that really is an expression of personality. Um, that's you know, apart from a few, you know, sort of niches in cookbook publishing where this is possible, um, you know, these books aren't expected to sell very well. Really, publishers want blockbusters that sell well. And so they, they want kitchen Bibles. Um, but James is determined to, to try to write a narrative style cookbook. Uh, in 1955, he teams up with Helen Evans Brown, uh, who's based in Pasadena. Uh, she's a great friend of his. Um, and together they write the complete book of outdoor cooking, outdoor cookery. And this is an experience James had. You know, he goes into it with uh, a lot of optimism that he and Helen, who's a really great writer and a really, really talented. Um, you know, creative uh, food person, recipe developer, has these wonderful ideas that they're gonna write this fantastic book, but it gets basically murdered by Doubleday. Um, you know, they're, they're cheap, they want it short, um, they don't want any illustrations, 
Um, they just want simple, practical information. And 1955 is, you know, the mid 50s are sort of a key um, moment for narrative cookbooks um, in, let's see, I think this is 19, 1953. Um, this book by Jean Platt and Sophie Kerr, The Best I Ever Ate. This is a book um, that is about, uh, it's a cookbook, but it's about um, the experiences of June Platt and Sophie Kerr. Sophie Kerr is a sort of respected writer and June Platt is a designer, uh, but also the author of several cookbooks. She was in Boston. Um, and so it's a book about, um, it's the sort of style of narrative food book that James Beard wants, wants to write. Um, there's June on top and Sophie down below. And it's a series of essays about great dishes that they've had around the world uh, in their lives. Um, it's an unusual book uh, for American publishing. Um, the fact that it's a book of essays that has recipes as well is definitely in the style of MFK Fisher, but it's a lot more accessible um, than some of MFK Fisher's work. And James Beard is very excited about it and says to Helen, his friend, that he really wants to write a book like that. Uh, at the same time, 1954, the Alice B. Toklas cookbook is published. And James Beard has deep, deep reverence for this book. Uh, again, this is exactly the type of book that, that, that he wants to write, which is um, a narrative, but also, but also a cookbook. Um, and so it, um, you know, it's... Alice describing her life with Gertrude Stein, uh, who died right after the war. Um, and what's unique about this book and what really uh, excited James Beard about it is the way that Alice B. Toklas um, inserts recipes into the book. Um, in, um, you know, even in MFK Fisher, it would be, it might be an essay passage, and then at the end of it, it would be a recipe, sort of like the sort of food blogging style of, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, that we all know. Um, um, instead, Alice inserts the recipes, they really become part of the text. There's really not a strong uh, delineation between text and recipes. You can see here, you know, even, the way that she phrases things. You know, another early recipe for the last 60 years has been known amongst my friends as Alice's cookies. And she sort of gives the recipe in this very wordy kind of narrative style. So this is what James Beard wants to write. Um, one of the problems is that, um, you know, there's a lot about his life that he can't talk about. Um, you know, he's um, devised a way to be of being well-known and being famous and sort of concealing his private life, concealing his past. There's much in his past uh, about his sexuality uh, that certainly can't be known. I mean, Alice B. Toklas, you know, she and Gertrude Stein became famous in the 1930s because of Gertrude's autobiography of Alice B. Toklas. Um, you know, lesbianism is something that is Americans are less freaked out about <laughs> than, um, than sort of gay male sexuality. Um, and, you know, Alice is a, is, a, is a sort of, you know, charming, quirky oddball. And so she sort of gets a pass, but there's 
a lot in James Beard's life that he can't talk about. So he'd either have to lie about it, he'd have to create myths about it, um, he'd have to avoid a lot. So in 1959, James Beard, um, Dell publishes what turns out to be one of the two best-selling books of James Beard's career, the James Beard Cookbook. It's exactly what he doesn't want to write. <laughs> it's an enormous kitchen Bible that has very little personality. Uh, he wrote it with his collaborator, Isabel Calvert. Um, what's unusual about this book is that even though um, you know, it's the, it's the non-narrative style of book that James Beard is forced by publishing to write. Um, it was unusual because, you know, instead of a publisher bringing out, as they do today, the hardcover and then later doing paperback, um, Dell got the rights to it and published it as a, um, as a 75 cent paperback first, you know, a few years later, a different publisher did a hardcover version. Um, but this is really revolutionary and it took off. I mean, uh, you know, instead of having to go to a bookshop and pay $3.95 for a cookbook, which is, you know, pretty big chunk of money in 1959, this is 75 cents. You can buy it at a drugstore. You can buy it at a newsstand. Um, and it really helps to establish James Beard. And even though the book itself has very little personality in the language and the recipes. Um, they've chosen to show James Beard on the cover. And this is the first time that a cookbook has uh, a photograph, as opposed to a sketch, a photograph of an author on it. And really, you know, James Beard, because um, he's an oddity, you know, Americans um, are curious about him and he's kind of lovable. Um, you know, in the 1950s, some of the best selling books are diet books. You know, Americans, you know, like the man in the gray flannel suit, Americans are obsessed with business success. They're obsessed with conformity. They're obsessed with being sort of thin and energetic. <laughs> and here's James Beard. He's holding a plate of, or he's posing in front of a platter of choucroute garni, which is, you know, sauerkraut and, you know, many different types of pork products. So, very fatty, very rich. Um, and he himself looks like someone who was just not concerned, definitely not concerned about dieting. Um, and so, you know, his personal size becomes his brand. Um, and then uh, in 1960, a publisher brings out James Beard's Treasury of Outdoor Cooking, which is lavish. As you can see, it's a large format. Um, it was by the same publisher as did. Um, uh, you know, art, 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 art books, you know, photographic art books. And so James Beard gets this huge treatment. This comes out in 1960. And James thinks that, you know, he writes these sort of memoir sections about growing up in Oregon uh, for this book. The editor doesn't like them. They're not celebratory enough, so he rewrites them um, in ways that really irk James. And you can see this art styling, <laughs> this is supposed to be a picnic. There's like a nude woman like running past this lovely picnic table in the woods, just completely bonkers. James is completely humiliated by the way that his book is treated. Also, 
he's been, you know, he thought that he could include narrative passages in this book and they just get altered. Here's another just totally bonkers photo, which is this roast pig, just like stuck in a tree. Um, you know, Craig Claiborne sort of makes fun of the book in the New York Times. So after this, 1960, James is like, that's it. You know, he's had the fame of the James Beard cookbook. So he can sort of, he has power now to be able to tell publishers the kind of book he wants to do. And so he says, finally, he's going to write the narrative style book that he wants. And so that leads in 1964 to James Beard's Delights and Prejudices. But it's a problematic narrative book because it can't be autobiographical. It can't be purely autobiographical because of those things that James Beard has to conceal about his life. So he has this idea that he's going to instead write about his life as, the, as a series of things that he's tasted, uh, food experiences that he's had. Um, so it's autobiographical, but not really, <laughs> not as much as the publisher. So this is published by Athenaeum and uh, Pat Knopf, who sort of left his parents' publishing company to start his own publishing company, um, is thrilled to have this book on his list. But, you know, over the several years that it takes to write it, he's constantly sort of writing letters to James and his agent saying, you know, give me dates. I want, you know, when did this happen in your life? <laughs> I want readers, you know, readers will want to know about your life. And so James does that a little bit, but really he wants to write this narrative book that's about tastes. And Knopf gives it, or, you know, Pat Knopf gives it this, really lavish artistic treatment uh, as illustrator from San Francisco, Earl Tholander, who does these wonderful illustrations of especially the Oregon coast you can see here. Um, and so James Beard in writing this narrative book is really creating this mythology about American food. He sort of talks about his upbringing in uh, Portland and Oregon sort of leaves out the fact that he was really desperately unhappy as a child, um, talks about instead how um, unusual his parents were. Um, he was an only child, um, you know, grew up with parents who really uh, basically despised each other and spent as little time with each other as possible. And James grew up, you know, eating alone for most of the time. But you wouldn't quite know that from his descriptions, they, you know, the, the hard edges are sanded down. Um, it's a book really, you know, instead of the most important relationship being with this family that he grows up with, his most important relationship is with this landscape that teaches him to eat. And um, so it really does kind of, as I say, create this, this myth of American food, which can be taken anywhere, that um, you know each corner of the United States has uh, this amazing, rich food life, uh, food to be foraged, foods that are grown there that don't taste like foods from anywhere else. You know, these are all ideas that are common in other parts of the world. James knows them from France and Spain and Italy, but he Americanizes them and makes them 
sort of democratic in a sense. Everybody has access to these things where they live. They just need to look around. They just need to go find them. And this is, so that was published, this is published in 1964. Also in 1964, Athenaeum, their other big food book of the year is the Margaret Redkin Pepperidge Farm Cookbook, also given a really lavish treatment, as you can see here by the dust jacket. Um, and this is, um, this, is, this is sort of fake memoir. <laughs> this is everything James didn't want his book to be. So Margaret, Margaret Redkin, you know, sort of great businesswoman, I guess, who kind of started this Pepperidge Farm Company uh, in New England um, that succeeded. I mean, this book is sort of about her life and about that journey. I mean, but really it's, um, you know, a sales pitch for, for, for Pepperidge Farm. And it has all the sort of cliches of memoir, you know, sort of like growing up in, you know, with the cook who's whatever, you know, giving her delicious things to eat. Um, so, this is James with Julia. This is 1964 uh, behind James Beard's uh, townhouse on West 10th Street in Greenwich Village. So James Beard is, you know, he's really, um, you know, entering the height of his fame at this point after Delights and Prejudices is published. Delights and Prejudices bombs, basically nobody buys it, um, which makes him terribly sad. Um, you know, the narrative, you know, he finally gets to sort of write the narrative book that he's always wanted to write, um, and nobody wants to read it. Um, you know, he spent, oof, he spends almost five years on it, uh, really. Um, and it's, 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 it's a failure. Um, he still has enough power to be able to sort of pick and choose projects. But, uh, but, but it's a bitter disappointment. Um, he's still a national figure. This is a handout. Uh, this is from 1967. So one of his cooking classes, one of his cooking demonstrations, this one is from Hartford, Connecticut. Um, so this, this is the recipe booklet that, you know, if you signed up for this class, you would get full of James Beard recipes. You could see, you know, he's really been caricatured in this Hirschfeld kind of style. Um, you know, he's really a unique American character who can't really write <laughs> the unique book that he wants to write. So um, this is a picture of the Cuyahoga River um, that in 1969 sort of spontaneously erupted into flames because it had so many toxic elements in it. Um, so by the late 1960s, the United States is in a very different place than it was in 1964, even when Delights and Prejudices came out. Tremendous time of change and ferment. Uh, Vietnam War protests, uh, Stonewall happens in 1969, uh, two blocks from where James Beard is in New York City in his townhouse on West 10th. Um, so it's an enormous time of change. Um, a new publisher for James, or new old publisher for James, Little Brown, contracts with James to write the definitive James Beard cookbook. Um, you know, James Beard is a unique figure in America's food life. He has this long memory. You know, he was eating seriously with his mother, um, you know, in 1910. 
<laughs> as a small boy, she sort of trained him to eat and to taste. And so at a time of enormous change in the United States, James Beard is seen as this living repository of American food history. There's really nobody else who Americans could name in the 1960s who really had this tremendous sweep of knowledge about food, you know, not only abroad, but particularly in America. Um, you know, he is a one person encyclopedia of American food. And so Little Brown contracts with him to write. They're not sure what this book is going to be. Um, it's not yet, you know, in 1967, when he signs the contract, it's not yet a book specifically about American cookery. Certainly doesn't have any sort of historical uh, pretensions yet. Um, they want it to be everything that James Beard knows about food. And in fact, the editor of Woman's Day magazine in 67, when she, when the news breaks that James Beard is going to write this epic cookbook for Little Brown, she writes to his agent and says, I know what it should be called. It should be called Everything James Beard Knows About Cooking, um, which is essentially everything that America knows about cooking in the minds of many of his fans. But the problem is, you know, of course, American food is too vast and diverse for anyone to, um, you know, really encapsulate. And the whole phrase American cookery is problematic because, um, you know, there are styles of cooking, there are communities who have been cooking and sort of creating regional styles that American food publishing is really not interested in, certainly not yet. So in 1972, after many years of struggle um, and with Little Brown really sort of defining this, you know, it's the run up to the bicentennial of 1976. And there's uh, a strong reaction to all of the change and ferment that's going on in the United States. There's a sharp conservative shift uh, in politics and in social life and in cultural life, um, certainly for the type of people who would buy James Beard's cookbooks. Um, and so Little Brown sort of turns James Beard's book calls it James Beard's American Cookery and sort of makes it this uh, almost sort of comforting repository of American food knowledge, a certain kind of American food knowledge, very Europe-centered. Um, you know, the recipes are really sort of focused on the upper half geographically of the United States. You know, th there are Southern recipes, but James really has, you know, very little interest and very little knowledge about Southern food. Um, and, you know, if you took off the sort of framing that this is a historical American cookbook, a lot of it is just recipes that James has been publishing for years, new versions, you know, many, many um, French recipes, <laughs> you know, various European recipes. Um, and so he's kind of forced yet again to kind of write this great kitchen Bible you know, this time it's absolutely imbued with his personality, which is inescapable from this idea of Americanness. You know, he's the great keeper of American food knowledge. 
Um, you know, he takes it from various sources. Uh, this is Mary Cullen's Northwest Cookbook. It was published in 1945. Um, Mary Cullen, there was no Mary Cullen. Um, it was a sort of pen name uh, for the um, Portland, for the, or the Oregonian uh, newspaper in Portland. Um, and Catherine, um, Catherine Lawton, Catherine Lawton Hindley, she, she, she was known after she got married, um, was, was, was the author of this book. James basically, you know, whole chapters of American cookery, the cakes and some of the other sweet recipes are essentially verbatim from this book. Um, you know, so <laughs> James, again, sort of asked to be the one great authority on American food. And, you know, it would be difficult for anyone to do it. Um, he does credit um, Catherine Lindley in the book and he does pay her, um, but there's no acknowledgement that these are, you know, her recipes. She's just sort of, you know, an assistant. And when this book is published, you know, the sort of cultural moment that it comes that it comes out in is, you know, as I say, there's a sharp divide, much as there is today, uh, in American life and in American politics. Um, Raymond Sokoloff, who is the young, new food writer, somewhat new food writer at the New York Times, Craig Claiborne has stepped back. Um, he has a sort of countercultural. Um, point of view. And so he reviews James Beard's American Cookery. He reviews it in the same column with Edith Bunker's All in the Family Cookbook, <laughs> which came out the year before. Um, so, and with a, with a third book about this sort of back to the lander who kind of, this woman who kind of writes a book about early American recipes. And, you know, Raymond Sokoloff admires certain things about James Beard's American Cookery, but says basically that, you know, this subject is way too vast to get a handle on, which James is sort of trying to do in this book. And even though he sort of critiques the All in the Family cookbook, it's a real slap at James Beard, certainly, to even be sort of compared with, you know, basically a stunt book based on a TV's popularity. Um, it's, it's a real slap in the face to James Beard. And this is a bit of manuscript page from the introduction to American cookery. Um, it's a problematic introduction because, you know, you can see sort of James kind of struggling with the idea to put his finger on, you know, what is American cookery? He would be asked by the press all the time. And he, you know, eventually would just sort of come up with this pat answer like, well, you know, anything that American, you know, anything that Americans eat, that's American food. Um, which is actually the right answer. <laughs> it's actually the correct answer, but, um, you know, this book is sort of framed, you know, James Beard's great book is, is sort of framed as this sort of definitive idea of, of, of what, what American food is. And he doesn't, he doesn't quite, he can't quite encapsulate that. And then the next year, 1973, he publishes his first book with under the great editor Judith Jones at Knopf, Beard on Bread. And it's, you know, at the time in Ameri American cookbook publishing has definitely changed. 
And so we see an emphasis on single subject books, like Beard on Bread, you know, so from this, you know, from decades of trying to write these, you know, large inclusive books, you see this sharp turn um, to books that are much, much smaller in scope. Beard on Bread ends up being one of James Beard's best-selling books. Um, you know, um, Judith Jones is a genius in sort of knowing what the market wants, but also knowing how to position an author's image. Um, and here and in, you know, the four or five books that she'll edit of James Beard until he dies, in 1985, she's very careful, uh, instead of photographs of James, who by 1972 is looking quite elderly uh, and quite ill often. Um, she really, except for author photos, she'll just show him in these dynamic Carl Stucklin illustrations where he looks dynamic. He's like this sort of master crafts person <laughs> in his great steaming lab. Um, you know, with a butcher's apron on. Um, and so it's, you know, James doesn't get to write the great narrative book that he wants to. He feels um, really rather bitter at the end of his life because he feels like he's a failure in many ways, uh, that he was too early, that he, he, you know, things that other authors were able to do after him, he just wasn't quite able to do. And here's Edna Lewis's great book, The Taste of Country Cooking, also done for Judith Jones at Knopf. This is published in 1976. And by 1976, you know, a book, you know, the kind of book that James Beard had really wanted to write, which is, um, you know, food that, uh, a cookbook that combines, um, you know, narrative and memoir and is really evocative of a place. I mean, the question is, would the taste of country cooking be possible um, without delights and prejudices coming before it, without this James sort of establishing the idea that great regional cooking existed in the United States? Um, would Edna Lewis have become as popular uh, as she, as, she, as, she, as she became, and would she have been able to write A Taste of Country Cooking? Probably not in quite the same way. At the same time, Edna Lewis you know, does what James Beard is not able to do. Um, you know, she's able to write about her past in a more authentic way than James Beard was able to do. And um, you know, this is, this is, this is James in the last few years of his life. He's in his final New York townhouse on 12th street, uh, beard house today. You could sit, you can just sort of barely, I don't know if, you know, for those of you who have been to beard house, this is his, this is his mirrored sleeping alcove. So he's standing at the entrance to it. There are steps behind him. You could see the mirror on the ceiling. So, um, the space behind him is really taken up by his enormous bed. You can see his, his part of his collection of Chinese uh, antiques, um, things that he collected. So, you know, James Beard wrote these 
great struggle to write books that really expressed personality, which he did almost despite the sort of publishing industry that he had to that he had to work in. I mean, it was really it's really a tribute to his great charm and charisma that he was able to project this personality, even though the books that he could write were really sort of flawed vessels of that personality, both for you know his own personal reasons, the things that he couldn't quite write about, uh, in delights and prejudices, say. Um, and you know, at this point you know, in the early 1980s, Judith Jones so desperately wants a follow-up to Delights and Prejudices. She wants the second great, um, you know, James Beard narrative book that sort of takes up his life after 1964. Um, and he's just, you know, she sort of sends a few authors over to him to see if he can work with them so, so that they could ghostwrite such a book. He's really just not interested in it. Um, you know, he doesn't quite have the energy, but also I believe he's just, you know, he's really unable to talk about his life in any way. Um, you know, he spent a life really, um, you know, living in a very coded way with his sexuality. And it's just not something, um, you know, he's created enough myths about himself. Um, you know, he can't, he can't really talk about his life anymore. Um, so, you know, at the end of his life, he's achieved a lot for American food. You know, he's, he's sort of laid the groundwork for other chefs and authors and food personalities to, to, to sort of take it up. But, um, but yeah, he's, he, he, he becomes sort of a tragic figure at the very end. Um, but I'm still, um, I think Delights and Prejudices is quite an amazing work. It's largely the work of his friend, the editor, John Farone, who took James's messy sort of stream of consciousness notes and really you know, molded them into a book that is in a way um, about an artist's uh, progression. Um, you know, the way that an artist, in James's case, someone who, um, who, 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 who is an artist of tasting, <laughs> tasting things, um, you know, he sort of creates this phrase, taste memories in it, in Delights and Prejudices. Um, and really, it's sort of a challenge for Americans to eat where they live and to eat with a lot of intention. Um, and I'll just leave you with when I was researching the book, The Man Who Ate Too Much, when I spoke with Alice Waters of Chipanese, she mentioned what an influence Delights and Prejudices had on her um, and would have on her sort of evolving thinking about eating locally, about the sort of farm to table movement, really did look to James Beard as um, you know, a sort of great early architect of that movement in American food. Um, let's see. I think that's it. If we have any questions, thank you very much. Thanks, John. Thank you so much. Uh, oh, and Kathy, forgive me, I forgot to mention about your group, uh, Chicago Foodways Roundtable. So please check our website for Kathy's wonderful programs as she gives a bountiful amount of programs. And John, thank you. After your talk tonight, I, I just remembered we had Susan Ungaro, who was president of the James Beard Foundation, speak for us when Chicago 
switched to when when New York switched to Chicago to present the James Beard Awards and she was in town and she gave a wonderful talk about James Beard and yours complimented her so we've got a full buffet of James Beard lore on, on our website now. So uh, I'm going to kick off the first question uh, and I want to tell everybody we're just going to go on with chat questions after I ask my first question and the formal part of the program has ended so if anytime you want to depart, uh, feel free to. And those of you who want to stay on, we're going to get some more inside information. But my first question is, it's a three-part. Um, why did you decide to write about James Beard? Uh, how did you do the research? This is a, a massive subject for a massive person. And uh, uh, how long did it take you to write the book? Uh, <clears throat> let's see. I think I worked on the book for... Oof. Uh, I guess it was five years from from when I really started doing the research to when to when the sort of final manuscript was wrapped up. So actually, pretty short time for a biography. Um, you know, I can see why biographies take ten years at least. Um, and the I'll sort of answer the 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 three parts backwards. Um, the the research was you know. Um, largely archival, um, people who knew James Beard, I mean, there are still many people who knew James Beard, um, you know, knew him in the 1970s, the early 1980s, um, really not many people, I think the earliest I spoke with was someone who had known him, I think met him in 1960. Um, so, you know, when James was already in his late 50s, um, so a sort of dwindling number of people who knew James directly, although uh, much of the book was drawn from um, a few people who knew him extremely well in the 1970s, like Carl Jerome, who was his assistant for five years in the 1970s. Um, but largely archival, um, the James Beard papers at NYU, of course, uh, and also um, James Beard's agent, John Schaffner, most for me, the most fascinating part of doing the research, um, his letters are at Columbia and he was a big literary agent and I expected to find not much there except, you know, royalty statements. Um, but it turns out, you know, John Schaffner had a very complicated life, um, you know, like I think many gay people uh, in the 1950s, he had sort of worked out an arrangement where he was married to a woman and had children, but he was free to have, you know, affairs, a love life with men on the side. And so he and James Beard connected that way. And so letters that James would write from Europe to his agent, they'd be full back and forth with talk about, you know, very personal things about sexuality. Um, so uh, I got a lot of my information there, uh, you know, a lot of things that were new that weren't available for the two earlier biographies. And then a lot of the rest of it was just sort of trying to immerse myself in the times that James Beard lived. Um, and the reason, you know, the sort of impetus for writing the book was uh, an essay that I wrote in 2013 for Lucky Peach magazine uh, called America is So Gay that sort of looked at the uh, achievements of a complicated closeted or some semi-closeted trio of gay male food writers 
um, James Beard, Craig Claiborne, and Richard Olney. And James Beard really sort of stuck with me. There were a lot of things in his life that puzzled me. Um, you know, he was the most famous of the three. And so I wondered how someone so famous who invited, you know, he conducted cooking classes in his home. And so, <laughs> you know, how someone kept a, pri a private life had to be private. There's enormous risk in, you know, revealing himself, how he, how, how he could do that. Um, so that was really the impetus for the book. So um, Ethel inquired, how did Food Awards come to be named for him? I'm sorry, how did what come the to be? The Food Awards come to be named for oh, him. Great. Um, so yeah, so he, so James died in 1985. Um, he wanted to disappear. He specified in his will that um, you know, he wanted his townhouse to be sold. He wanted all of, you know, he was a great collector of um, antiques, um, tons of stuff that he had. He wanted it all to be auctioned off and sold. He specified that it should all be auctioned off and sold. Most of it to go to his complicated alma mater, Reed College in Portland. Um, he wanted to make sure that his partner of 30 years, Gino Kofachi, his you know, life partner, um, was taken care of till the end of his life. But apart from that, he wanted everything to be sold off. Um, and his friends didn't let him do that. So after he passed away, um, there, there, there was an auction. Um, you know, all, all of his stuff was basically scattered, gone. Um, they put the house on the market for his wishes, but it didn't sell right away. Mean, in the meantime, uh, some friends of his, primarily uh, Julia Child, thought it was would be a shame and a scandal if James Beard disappeared in such a way. So she really organized the food community to rally and to raise money to buy the townhouse um, and to keep it as a um, memorial uh, to sort of keep James's name and legacy alive. So the James Beard Foundation was founded by Peter Kump, who was also a major player. He was a, a cooking teacher uh, who died in the 1990s. Um, and so he primarily, you know, he and Julia Child primarily founded the James Beard Foundation the year after James Beard died in 1986. And by 1990, the foundation um, took a couple of existing food awards. Um, there was a Who's Who uh, Cooks magazine did a Who's Who in food in America every year. They named the most important people in food. And so the James Beard Foundation took that, plus there was a, a different sort of restaurant award. Um, so they took those two, combined them, and they created the James Beard Foundation, uh, the James Beard Awards, which had their first ceremony in 1991. But um, yeah, James Beard had, uh, you know, wouldn't have wanted the James Beard Foundation, um, you know, so. Okay, Amy, who, uh, no. uh, which book do you consider Beard's most important and what is your favorite? Um, I think Delights and Prejudices is, uh, it's definitely the most important. Um, it's uh, underappreciated. Um, I mean, I think many of the recipes are, um, are great. Um, and that's something that I, you know, I can't say about all of James Beard's books. You know, he wasn't a, 
um, he churned stuff out and he had to come up with thousands and thousands of recipes a year. So all of his recipes, you know, unlike Julia Child say, you know, James Beard didn't publish recipes that are really, really well tested, um, except for his later books with Judith Jones, Beard on Bread was exhaustively tested. Um, but Delights and Prejudices is just um, from a literary perspective. Um, I think it's a great American food book um, and it offers an alternative to, you know, sort of better known perhaps literary food books like MFK Fisher's. Um, and yeah, I, I think um, there's a really subtle, it has a really subtle arc, um, you know, about a person becoming sort of aware of sensuality, you know, becoming aware of taste um, in the course of a life. So I think that's quite amazing. Um, I'm actually, I have a real fondness for James Beard's second book, which is called Cook It Outdoors, just because his voice hasn't been edited out of it. <laughs> and so really get a flavor for how fun and sassy. Um, and there's like sort of, he makes sort of couched gay, like jokes and, and things in that book. So um, that's sort of James at his most sort of love, you know, lovable and I think most authentic. Oh, Jennifer asked, what would be his most famous recipes? Ooh, um, chicken with 40 cloves of garlic, which oh. is something that he test that he did at his classes a lot. Um, and that is a recipe from the late 1960s that he did, you know, throughout throughout the 1970s. Um, he, you know, earlier he was known um, so you know, souffles of any kind were something that uh, earlier in his career he was he was really known for. Um, so that uh, from Beard on Bread in 1973, there are a couple of recipes, just sort of basic white bread, um, a recipe for corn sticks that sort of became famous that he got from his um, assistant, he called him his houseman, uh, Clayton Triplett. <laughs> He worked for him for many years. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's funny. It's like people don't, oh, and of course the sort of onion sandwiches, which oh, are yeah. from his first book from 1940, which were written about many times in the New York Times over the years. It's like a, you know, brioche sandwich that has a really thin slice of raw onion and mayonnaise in it. <laughs> um, so yeah, but you know, he's not someone who's known if people know him at all, it's really not for not for recipes. It's for his sort of personality overall. Okay, so Calvin inquired, how did James Beard self-identify as a chef or a writer, and how good a chef was he? He would, you know, especially sort of later in the 1970s and 80s when the when Americans started using the word chef more, he would really push back. He would really get annoyed. Like, I am not a chef. Um, he, he wanted to be a writer, but he did not have the skill to be a writer. Um, he, that's actually a good question. He, um, I think a teacher is what he was really best at. And he felt most comfortable being, 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 being described as he was a teacher and a guide. Um, 
you know, he was a proud amateur. Um, you know, Julia Child, although she went to culinary school, which James Beard didn't, didn't, didn't. I mean, you know, Julia Child, in many ways, was sort of identified with being this great amateur in the kitchen. Um, and at the end of James Beard's life, you see the shift in American food from these great ex, you know, amateur experts like James and Julia to this chef, you know, professional restaurant chefs who became the new stars of American food. And every, you know, every food magazine wanted to feature them and publish their recipes. And Americans wanted to cook like restaurant chefs. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, even though he aspired to be a writer, he, 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 he thought of himself as a teacher primarily. And, and that's how Judith Jones, uh, his editor at Knopf, I mean, that's what she really tried to, that's how she tried to package James as, as the great teacher uh, of cooking in America. Uh, Jacqueline said, I'm interested in leftovers and I have a copy of Beard's How to Eat Better for Less Money. Can you comment <laughs> on this book, please? How to Eat Better for Less Money. Actually, I really, I love the original edition of that book. So I believe it was 1956, 56 or 57. The original How to Eat Better for Less Money was published. It was redone in 74, I think. Um, and it's a, um, I think it's a great book. I think the first edition is a great book. Um, it's James taking um, French ideas about cooking, French recipes and French ideas about cooking, French ideas about wine. Um, he also he sort of wrote it with Sam Aaron, uh, who's a great wine importer, um, Sherry Wine and Spirits. And their idea originally was to write, to co-write a book about wine and food. Um, and in the sort of, you know, scramble of, of, of publishing, the, you know, maddening world of publishing, it ended up being picked up by, um, by pocketbooks. And because they thought it was too fancy, um, you know, in, in the 1950s, to do, you know, even though it was a book that James and Sam Aaron wrote to demystify wine and to try to get Americans to um, drink wine, um, to not be afraid of wine and to not be wine snobs um, and to cook in a, in a simple way, like, you know, he's talking about sort of making stocks, like always make stocks. So you have, you know, a very cheap, inexpensive way to add flavor to your meals. Um, all of these solid foundations, um, it was considered too highbrow. And so they named it How to Eat Better for Less Money. It got a different emphasis. And then in the 1970s, when it was redone, it was qu quite dramatically edited to be sort of narrowly a book about budget dining. It was after the sort of, sort of inflationary period of the early 1970s. Um, and so it's really a chopped up <laughs> book. So if you have the version of the 1970s, I'm not so crazy about it. If you have the original one, I love it. And, um, you know, something, you know, he has a recipe for like lentil cassoulet, which is just, you know, not a big elaborate 
fancy cassoulet, but it's something that, you know, it's just like a few ingredients to make a quick, satisfying, or, you know, relatively quick, satisfying dish. So I hope you have the early one. <laughs> and I have actually that book myself, and I'm like now wondering what the heck do I have in my possession? Uh, um, okay, RB asked, how did you find out about James' feelings towards his lovers? Oof, um, through, um, largely through uh, Carl Jerome, who was uh, a very important source and I had many conversations with, um, who was a love interest of James uh, unwillingly. Um, um, you know, James had reached out to him and sort of exploited him sexually. Um, so yes, I got a lot of that information from Carl, um, conversations that he had had with James about you know, earlier lovers. Um, and then there, there, are, there are sort of hints that James leaves in, um, uh, in letters to his agent, uh, John Schaffner, um, talking about Gino, uh, his partner, talking about, um, you know, for instance, James is in Barcelona uh, in 1957 and he runs into um, an old flame, as he calls him, someone he had a, a brief fling with, a French guy he had a brief fling with in Paris who had been a boxer, a prize fighter. <laughs> um, and so he describes seeing him again to John and he describes a bit about their earlier fling. And then also in, there are some pretty detailed date books that James Beard wrote, um, he used them sort of as travel diaries. Um, so from 1953, essentially to he kind of peter out into the early 60s. So there are glimpses there, um, definitely of people he's seeing and what they ate. Sometimes you can get a sense of what he, what he felt about the encounter. Um, Teresa inquired, uh, said, thank you for this presentation, John, and for the book. You mentioned at the beginning that beard stardom had faded, has faded since the 1980s. Why and how did this happen? Uh, his name lives on through the James Beard Awards, but the food world has, doesn't seem to celebrate him the way we do, say, Julia Child. Is that true? And why do you think so? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely true. Um, you know, Julia Child, for instance, I mean, she's unusual. I mean, she, she was she was really brilliant. I mean, you know, she had television, which James didn't succeed at. So um, she had a much larger audience to begin with. Um, um, but she, um, she was able to keep reinventing herself, um, at, you know, through different periods of, of, of her career. So, you know, if Julia Child had stopped, um, you know, if we only knew her for, you know, mastering the art of French cooking uh, and the French chef TV series, she would have faded as well. But Julia did, a, she was, she did an amazing job of, you know, doing, you know, being on TV with sort of younger restaurant chefs and, and for, um, for uh, staying relevant. Um, James wasn't able to do that. Um, he, so he was really eclipsed in many ways by American food culture itself. I sort of mentioned the, the shift 
um, from food experts and authorities like James Beard to younger restaurant chefs. So you see that in the late 1970s and definitely in the early 1980s. I mean, a lot of, you know, several of these chefs who you know, came to be known as new American chefs um, looked to James Beard as a mentor, someone who could talk to them, you know, about, um, you know, what real strawberry shortcake was like, you know, when it was made with, you know, delicious strawberries and you know, cream from a farm and, um, you know, somebody like Larry Forgione. Um, but he just became completely eclipsed or almost completely eclipsed by just that generational change. You know, even, you know, as I tried to suggest, I mean, even in 1972, when James Beard's American Cookery came out, you can, you know, he, it really sort of solidified his role as this great hero of American food for an older generation, you know, for a middle-aged generation, but for a younger generation, you know, for the generation that was marching uh, against the Vietnam War, that was marching for civil rights, that was, you know, you know, uh, protesting at Stonewall. I mean, that was not a generation that was going to feel that James Beard was relevant. Um, so it, you know, it really was largely a generational shift as well. Um, um, yeah. As they say, timing is everything. Yeah. Um, did you stumble upon anything pizza and or pizzeria related in your research on Beard? <laughs> and did he have a favorite pizzeria? Uh, I don't, I don't know that if he had a, a favorite pizzeria, I, if he did, I, I, I don't know it. Um, but yeah, he, uh, he was an early proponent of pizza. Um, in 1953, he took over a restaurant on Nantucket from two friends of his who weren't going to be there for the summer. So they gave it to James Beard to run. It was called Lucky Pierre. Um, and it was just like a little hamburger stand on the wharf. But James turned it for three months. Ooh, my God. Um, James Beard turned it into this great expression of what he thought restaurant food should be, which is that it should be high and low, that it should combine, you know, foods, you know, accessible foods like pizza and a hamburger, as well as sort of fancier, fancier dishes. It was a little ahead of people's time, but he did, a, um, but he did pizza. Um, you know, he made pizza, pizza crust, you know, he made his own dough and he baked pizzas. Um, he talks about pizza in Beard on Bread and a couple of his of his later books. Um, yeah, he is. He does love pizza. He's not. He, I guess he's not as strongly associated with it um, as I'm thinking of, like Elizabeth David, who sort of wrote about it. You know, wrote about pizzas and pizza ladiers and, and stuff in. Uh, Britain, but um, but yeah, James Beard was was a pizza proponent. I th I think it's a little um, yeah. I, I don't know. I'm trying to think if he his uh, syndicated column in the 1970s. He was sort of champion foods, especially around New York City, that he discovered or that you know friends would bring to him and that he would enjoy. I don't remember one about pizza. By the way. Uh, this gives me an opportunity. Uh, I'm 99% certain the person who asked that question will be sitting on the hot seat on uh, May 13th talking about the history um, 
of deep dish pizza in Chicago and its origins and disputes and all things that related. Um, Penelope, not that this is your problem actually, but she said if the Chicago Public Library does not have beards, delights and prejudices, but you know, interlibrary loans maybe might settle that issue. Wow. Yeah, I think the last, it's out of print definitely. And I think, yeah, I don't know when the last edition was, I think in the 1980s. Uh, but by the way, you mentioned the Peter Kump, uh, Cooking School. I th- th- I remember reading his columns like in the 70s and the 80s in the Tribune, and they were so interesting and so detailed, like cutting all of them. So I have like a clipping file of all of his recipes. <laughs> yeah, he was he was he was a great teacher um, as well, and you know really looked at James Beard as a as a as a mentor. Um, you know, started teaching cooking classes out of a really tiny apartment in New York City that, you know, like, like a lot of early teachers, there's at some point I, I, when I was doing research, there was like some point in 1969 or something where the New York Times listed, um, you know, if, if you want to take a home-based cooking class, you know, it'd be James Beard, but then there would be like, you know, Marcella Hassan <laughs> in her apartment, um, <laughs> Diana Kennedy in her apartment, you know, extra extra fee if you wanted to take her you know tortilla class um and yeah it was quite quite incredible <laughs> the golden era of home of, of visiting people's yeah, homes and learning to cook right right insane uh and by the way cynthia pointed out and i i agree with her she says delights and prejudices shows up at many secondhand bookstore outlets yeah and if you can get the i'm trying to find mine but yeah if you can get like in a, you know, a, you know, it doesn't have to be first edition, but sort of the original design. I mean, Athenaeum really spent a lot. It has an unusual uh, dimensions. It's sort of longer and skinnier and, um, you know, it's really on really fine paper. There's like little sparkles in the end papers. <laughs> so there's sort of cheaper later editions, but yeah, if you can, you know, if you can find an affordable earlier edition, it's worth it. I think Scott. I think uh, what is your imp- uh, by the way? Somebody said, "What is your impression of, of Beard now?" Oof, you know, um, I, I, I'm. Um, I mean, I think he accomplished an enormous amount, and and I think we owe a really um, we we who cook and who love food um, and who you know consume cookbooks, uh, we owe James Beard a, 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 a great debt. Um, he was, um, you know, it's interesting, um, when he died in 1985, sort of the closing episode of my book, there's a, an event at Rockefeller Center, um, which is a big sort of gala to raise money for City Meals on Wheels. Um, and it was supposed to be about James Beard on his birthday, but he passed away. So they, the organizers decided to do it as a tribute to James Beard. But, you know, it's this great roster of chefs, Wolfgang Puck and uh, Edna Lewis and Jeremiah Tower, Alice Waters, uh, Jimmy Schmidt, all these sh- chefs are cooking. And it becomes this sort of glittering, you know, it's sort of the the sort of local Trump era, you know, it's this lifestyles of the rich and famous kind of era. And so it becomes this great social event 
um, when you know New Yorkers want to be seen. Um, mm-hmm. in, the, in the Village Voice afterwards, Jeff Weinstein writes about it and said that you know even though it was impressive, you know chefs were doing some 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 pretty impressive dishes. Um, it really lacked you know, it really wasn't a tribute to James Beard because it didn't capture the sort of democratizing spirit of food that really was James Beard at his best. And I think, um, you know, it's hard for us to see that now when, you know, food has become so uh, accessible in so many ways, you know, on Food Network and in other places. Um, But James Beard, you know, really did pierce through this culture the culture of food of his times that was horribly stratified. Um, you know, there was high food and there was low food and high food was not all that good, um, but there was a much more exciting food at the street level. And James Beard really was able to kind of fuse those two in many ways and say that, you know, something like um, ham and eggs, if you did it the right way, you know, if you were careful about where you bought your ham and you careful about the eggs that you bought and you cook them carefully, that that could be as great a dish as the sort of fanciest restaurant dish. Um, and that was a lesson that was really startling for Americans at the time, something we take for granted now. But he's, his thinking is so sort of suffused in what we take for granted in food that it's sort of hard really to see really sort of hard to see his influence sometimes. Um, But yeah, I I think, you know, as flawed a person as he was in his private life, and there are plenty of moments in his life and in doing the research where I just felt really angry (laughs) at James Beard um, for the things that he did. Um, You know, he was able to accomplish a tremendous amount in food that we just take for granted now. Thank you very much. And Scott, I'm turning it over to you. Well, you can turn over to me and I want to say thank you so much. This was so insightful. And I forgot to thank Mike Gebert, who's not online right now. He's editor of Fooditor. And he suggested, why don't you have that guy who wrote The Man Who Ate Too Much? And I looked, I said, that sounds familiar. And then I was going through my emails or something, trying to find something, and your name popped up from an old email. I said, oh my God, I did ask him. <laughs> so anyway, a, a, a belated thanks to Mike Gebert. If you could relay that for me, Kathy, I'd appreciate that. And thank you so much. And again, your book is The Man Who Ate Too Much. And uh, I, I hope I hope when they start the James Beard Awards again, after their scandalous cancellation for this coming year or something, I hope, I, I bet you'll win one if, if they give you one, if, if, if they're doing awards. So thank you and everybody, I hope we see you next month and for Kathy's programs too, please check our website for all our programs. Good night. <laughs>